Today we turn in God's Word to Acts chapter 6, and we look at verses 1 through 7. Hear now the Word of God. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Sinclair Ferguson says in a great summary, don't you wonder sometimes what's the Old Testament about, what's the New Testament about? Well, the whole Old Testament, he says, in some ways is a footnote to Genesis 3.15, the promise of a Messiah to crush Satan's head. The whole New Testament, he says, in some way is a footnote to Matthew 16, verse 18 where Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a reminder to us, loved ones, that we are in a war zone. The world, the flesh, and the devil are warring, but Christ is conquering, and Christ who's in heaven physically is present with his people spiritually by his Spirit by his word, and by giving gifts like office bearers to his people. The Lord Jesus, as Ephesians 4 says, bestows his love upon us through these men, in a sense. Not only did God love us from before the foundation of the world, not only did God love you when Jesus died for your sins, not only does God love you by sending his spirit upon you, but God loves you through the gift of of office bearers. We don't want to exalt any man. We want to exalt Christ. We want to give thanks to God for these men, and we want to see today how the office of deacon arises in Acts chapter 6 in the midst of a problem with administration. There's a book called The Trellis and the Vine. For a vine to grow healthy, you need a good trellis. And so also, for a church to be healthy, you need good administration and organization. And the problem that presented them 
in the apostles that they had in this context was a problem where the church itself was at each other's throats over an administrative problem that was revealed more deeply in a heart problem. Let's look at this office of deacon that is established here in Acts 6 and see what it means not only in that context but for us today. First, the need for deacons. Acts 6 begins in those days. What days are these, loved ones? These are the days of Pentecost, of thousands being converted, of the Holy Spirit going forth, of the disciples increasing, where there might have been, some say, upwards of 20,000 converts in Jerusalem, meeting in hundreds of churches. These are the days of Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and dropping dead. These are the days of miracles being done through the apostles and by the power of the Spirit. And as the disciples are increasing, as the word is going forth, an administrative problem is potentially derailing the mission of the church. As Ferguson says, Satan works in three ways. He's not real creative, but he is persistent. The three ways Satan works throughout church history, and you see one of them here in Acts 6, are persecution from the outside, heresy and false teaching from the inside, corruption, false teaching and doctrine, and third, division into two sides. This division, this dividing and conquering, this getting the members to be at each other's throats is what's happening in Acts 6. The sneakiest, perhaps, of all of Satan's devices to get the church off mission, off the word, off prayer, off the gospel. And so, loved ones, today, When growth and change happen, it challenges our illusions at control. It tempts us to fight. And the fight here in Acts 6 is a complaint and a conflict revolving around a very good thing. What is it, children? It's serving the widows. Serving them with food and money and caring for them, which is what God has ordained for his people to do from the very beginning of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 14. Care for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. James chapter 1. Pure religion is that widows and orphans are cared for in their distress and their affliction. Do you remember Naomi and Ruth? There's an example of that. In 1 Timothy 5, there's a list of widows that need assistance. So the church kept this list. They're caring for those who are downtrodden and afflicted in mercy. And the conflict is the Hellenists say that their widows are being neglected in favor of the Hebrews' widows. What does that mean? Well, these are people that speak different languages most likely. The day of Pentecost, remember, there's many different languages being spoken in the people, among the city of Jerusalem in these days. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Christians. They didn't read or speak Hebrew. 
They read the Greek Old Testament. They were probably from outside of Jerusalem more. The Hebrews were raised in Jerusalem. They read the Old Testament in Hebrew. And there's tension here, cultural tension, language tension, trying to understand these different languages. The emotions are rising. Was there really neglect happening? Was it just perceived? It had the potential, either way, to rip apart the church. This mercy ministry to the widows, both the Hellenists and the Hebrews, would require significant organization and care. But behind that is a heart problem. You see the word in verse 1, complaining or grumbling? In the Greek, it's a word that says gongousmas. I don't like to use Greek, except in this case, kids, you learned a Greek word today, gongousmas. As one man says, it's an onomatopoeia. You say, what is that? It means it sounds like what it is, like the word tick-tock or oink. Gongousmas, it sounds like a grumbling, doesn't it? And it's the same grumbling and the same word used for the grumbling of the people in the days of the Old Testament in the wilderness as they're wandering. They're grumbling against Moses. It has the potential to bring lasting division in the church. It did in the days of Moses. It did in Acts 6. It still does today. It's a subtle thing, Ferguson says. People who murmur like this always can point to something and say, well, I'm right to murmur because this is wrong. It spreads like a cancer. And it is perhaps the most powerful instrument in Satan's hands. Do you see what the complaint is? It's not really about food, is it? It's a complaint by the Hellenists against the Hebrews. That word against shows that it has become personal. It is us versus them. Can you believe what they are not doing to help us? The key word against reminds us that when we speak about problems or difficulties in a church, is my language for them or is it against them? The person with a heart murmur will always say, well, I'm right, they're wrong. This is not right. But the word against is the sign of what's happening in my heart. Not my ability to point out what might be inadequate, but the fact that there's something in my heart that is set against a fellow Christian for whom Christ died. That the Son of God left heaven and came to earth and died for that person. What right do I have to set my heart against them, against someone that Jesus died for. That kind of murmuring is sinful, it is demonic, and it is potentially destructive. Sinclair Ferguson brings that out. This is deeply important, loved ones. That's what's going on behind the administrative problem. 
Satan wants to exaggerate tensions, sow divisions, generate complaints and grumbling, undermine the church's witness, and get the pastor and the elders and the deacons and the whole church off mission, off Christ, off the gospel, off prayer, over here, whatever here might be. Dealing with conflict is a crucial aspect to our life as a church, loved ones. Divisions don't just go away. And I want to say, if you are hurt, if you're holding a grudge, if you're angry with someone else in the church, with me, with an office bearer, if you think you've been slighted, either, as the Proverbs say, overlook it, or in prayer and humility, talk to the person about it. Don't brood on it. Don't hold it in. And don't go to others and talk to them about the issue you have with that person. It could be a misunderstanding. It could be an unspoken expectation. We are to give each other grace because unspoken hurt like this can bring death to a church. Do you remember what Paul says in Colossians 3? Put on as God's chosen ones. You're loved by Jesus. Holy and beloved. Put on what? Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. And patience. Bearing with one another. And if what? One has a complaint against another, Paul says, Colossians 3. Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on what? What do you think Paul's going to say? Put on your preference? Put on what? Love. Love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So what would the apostles do here? What do you think? Do you see what they didn't do? They didn't start a new church. They didn't throw out the complainers. They didn't talk to other people about the complainers. And they didn't shun the complainers. The apostles also didn't say, we're apostles, this is below us, we don't do the table thing. What's the table thing? Well, it's giving food and money to widows who are in need. They're not saying they shouldn't do that. Do you notice that? They're saying it's not right that we should give up preaching and prayer to serve the tables. The problem is they were becoming so busy and overburdened with these important tasks and this important service and ministry that it was to the neglect of prayer and preaching. And do you notice that order, prayer and preaching? There never should be preaching without prayer. And in the life of the church, Prayer is our lifeblood. Loved ones, the prayer meeting we have this coming Wednesday, the, first Wednesday, the second Wednesday of each month, is crucial to our mission. This is not just a part of what we do. This is not a task that we do. This is life coming before the throne of God, storming the gates of mercy in the name of Jesus, crying upon God, save your church, save the elect, bring the nations in, make disciples, cause our love for each other to abound, uproot that bitterness, 
change my cold heart. May your spirit bless your word. May your kingdom go forth as you have promised. Prayer and the ministry of the word is central to our life at Emmaus Road. The elders oversee this. The elders themselves, in shepherding the flock, understand our mission to go and make disciples of all nations. That our mission is to make disciples by the Spirit of God, that the nations would come to worship God, that churches would be planted, that evangelism would take place, and that the gospel would be central. That's our mission here. That's the mission of the apostles in the early church. So what do they do? Do you notice there's 12 of them? The New Testament, Israel, the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, 12 tribes in the Old Testament. They call a church meeting. And by God's providence, they go to the congregation and they say, choose people who, according to your judgment, can oversee this food and money distribution. And the church comes together. And the deacons, this office is established. There are parallels here to Exodus 18. That's in the Old Testament when Moses himself, do you remember, had all the people of Israel coming to him, lining up to meet with him. All these needs, they're important. And his father-in-law Jethro said, Moses, you can't do this alone. No one man can do it alone. Not then, not now. The church is never ruled by one man. Satan always tries to set up a chapel next to the church. Satan loves to see false churches ruled by one man. The church of Jesus never is ruled by one man. A plurality of elders and deacons and pastors. Nobody in the church should be overburdened. So Jethro said, and Moses listened to his father-in-law, appoint elders. The task is too great. And here in Acts 6, Apostles, you need to appoint deacons. The task is too great for one person. Or even for 12 apostles. Do you notice that in Exodus 18, Moses appointed the elders? But now in the new covenant, there's a decentralization of authority. You choose your elders and deacons, Emmaus Road. You choose your pastor as well. There is no kind of putting upon you these men. They're not appointed. And you nominate them, or you, you give the names to the elders and deacons who then nominate them. And you're a part of this process, as you, you saw in the congregational meeting just a few weeks ago. What's the result? Verse 5. The solution pleased the whole gathering. Don't you love that? The complaint is withdrawn. The irritation and the neglect has subsided. They all agree, and they choose seven servers. Who are these seven? All of them had Greek names. All of them may have been Hellenists. So the Hebrew majority in love said, we're going to have seven men who will help to care for these Hellenist widows who are being neglected, and we're going to show you compassion in that way. And who are the men? Two of them we know well. Stephen and Philip. 
Stephen, who gives a sermon in Acts 7. The first martyr of the Christian faith, put to death because he named the name of Christ. Voice of the martyr, still today, it's happening today. Stephen, who himself may have been preaching at the synagogue where Paul, of course Saul, was at. We don't know that for sure. Stephen, who himself goes to the nations, he's one of them. So is Philip. Through Philip, who is later called an evangelist, the gospel goes to Africa. You see, that's what this is about, getting the gospel out. Christ for the nations, because the nations need Christ. We need Christ. And Philip goes to Africa, and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53. And God saves that Ethiopian eunuch as Philip explains to him the gospel. And then the Spirit transports Philip. That's strange. And Philip finds himself as, at Azotus. And what's he doing there? Preaching the gospel. The church must not get off mission. So these men were deacons, but they were still involved in preaching the gospel. Interesting. The other names here we don't know much about. We do know that Nicholas is a proselyte from Antioch. We know that Antioch is the site of a Gentile church, a sending point of the gospel where? To the Gentiles. What's Acts about? The gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's happening here. There are parallels here to Numbers 27, the laying on of hands. That's what happened when Joshua was ordained in the days of Moses. That's what happened with the Levites. That's why we laid hands today on these men. That's the biblical pattern. And much like Joshua led God's people into Gentile territory, the land of Canaan, so these deacons and these apostles are a part of God's church going forth to the nations of the world. This is an amazing display of the mercy of God. But there was one other thing. Do you see that? Verse 7. Almost something we could miss. Not only was the Ethiopian eunuch in Africa saved, but those who were in the visible covenant community who did not profess the name of Christ, what happens with some of them? At this point, there may have been 5,000 priests, Jewish priests, in Jerusalem. It says in Acts 6, verse 7, a great many, not one or two, but a great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. That's the gospel. They were converted. The word of God increases. Because the church did not yield to the temptation of Satan to divide, to turn inward, to fight, and to pick sides. God blessed this church. The gospel went forth, and conversions happened. Do you see what the Lord is doing here? He pours out his blessing, and deacons are used by God in this way. What does this mean for us? 
at Emmaus Road. Secondly, what is the life and ministry of the deacon? Brothers, you are soldiers in the front lines of spiritual combat for the cause of Jesus. Brother deacons, you are vital for the health and growth of the church. The church's pathway to growth in the Bible and church history is never by ease and comfort. These men and the men that God calls to the office of deacon today are full of the Holy Spirit. They're believers. They love God. They love his word. They are so heavenly-minded that they are earthly good. They're wise. They're skillful. They understand the gritty needs of life and what happens in life in churches. They bear fruit. We read in 1 Timothy 3, they're not double-tongued. They say what they mean. They mean what they say. They're not addicted to wine. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the grace of God here. They're not drunks. They're not greedy. Paul says in 1 Timothy, they're handling finances. This is important. They're not new converts. They're tested. Meaning, you know them. You see these brothers. You see them serving. They're not just kind of ghosts out there. (laughs) They come from among us. They serve and love you. And you see them serve, and as they're serving faithfully, they're called to this office. Like the elders, they are to be examples to the congregation. An example of a man who is tender and tough. Not thin-skinned. Not, oh, I don't like that idea and I'm offended. A man, and this is true for all of us, you can learn more about a person when you tell them no than when you tell them yes. A man who, along with an elder and a pastor, might have an idea in a meeting and the other brothers think that's not the best idea and he says, okay, no tyranny of the minority. I'm not going to hold it over you. I'm not going to go and talk to others about what you said. There's got to be examples in this. They have a good reputation. Their reputation in church and at home and among friends and at work, it's the same. You say, this guy's the same guy. The guy that works there is the guy that's here. That's the grace of God. There's no double life going on here. They're hospitable. They show the love of God to strangers. They open their homes. They're the husband of one wife. Paul says that not meaning they have to be married. If they're married, they're devoted to their wife. If they're single, they're one woman single. Uh, they're, 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 they're pure in, in, their, in their devotion to the Lord. So if you're married, you're a one woman man to that one wife. If you're not married, you're sexually pure in all ways by the grace of God. That's what it's saying. This is an office for men. Women help the deacons. But men are called to lead as pastors and elders and deacons and ordained to these offices. And men are called to lead in the home and the church. And when that happens well, the church and the home function and flourish well. The wives of these deacons are not to be gossips. Do you notice that, Paul said? So these wives aren't going around telling everyone about all this stuff and stirring up people. They're dignified. 
Much of the work of the deacon will be work where their wives are helping. I've seen this among you brothers through the years. Just recently, one of you had a meal that was sent to someone. And you as a man can cook, and you and your, as your wife can cook, whoever made the meal, but your wives are helping, your kids are helping, they're sending pictures, and they're bringing things to these widows who are suffering. That's a great example of the work of the deacon. They manage their household well. Their wife and kids reflect on them. That's sobering for a pastor, for an elder, for a deacon. There are no perfect office bearers. That's not what this list is saying. This is the grace of God and what continues throughout all the offices, pastor, elder, deacon? Prayer. This is a spiritual office. It's not for the faint of heart. Brother deacons and elders and church members, you may grow weary in doing good, but what will help you deacons amid exhaustion? Verse 13 of 1 Timothy. Those who serve well have a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. In the early church, this is what was happening. Deacons were serving like this. In the Middle Ages... The Roman Catholic Church made the office of deacon a stepping stone to the priesthood, like an internship. In the days of the Reformation, Calvin and others returned to the biblical office of deacon. Calvin helped to establish hospitals and schools in Geneva. Fifty to 70,000 French refugees came to Geneva, Switzerland in those days, and the church cared For their needs. But in the 1800s, things flipped again. The modern American church still today often looks to the pastor as the CEO, and the deacons are kind of just the money managers. The Bible never teaches that. We're a band of brothers, pastor, elders, and deacons. We are a consistory serving together. The office of deacon is also not a stepping stone, like it's a junior office and then you become an elder. Some deacons become elders, praise God. But deacon is not a less important or less spiritual office. It's a different office than the elder. What does the word deacon mean? It means servant. Who is the servant that the Bible talks about over and over again? The suffering servant. Jesus. Mark 10, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. The Son of Man left the glory of heaven, served us by fulfilling all righteousness, served his people by dying on the cross in the place of sinners, rose from the dead. Christ is the great deacon of the church, and all of our deacons are to point to him in service. We want a culture here of looking to the interests of others, caring for each other in thick and thin. When it's hard to love, when it's hard to go and to do something we don't naturally in our flesh feel inclined to do, God, give us grace. 
Deacons are agents of the mercy of Jesus. We see the love of Jesus for our whole person, body and soul. This office, brothers, is one of love, sympathy, and service. You follow the example of Jesus. As you talk to people who have needs, you tell them of the love of Christ, who himself came and showed compassion to the sick and love for those who are hurting. As you serve your brothers and sisters, deacons, this is a tangible way for them to taste and see that the Lord is good. For them to know that God is the overflowing fountain of all that is good. Martin Luther said, deacons, you are the the mask, M-A-S-K, of Christ. Meaning, In this vocation, you are serving people in the name of Christ. You are bringing them an extension of the mercy of Christ. You're putting flesh and bones to Christ's mercy. You're going, as Matthew 25 says, to those who are hungry and thirsty, giving them food and drink, to those who are naked and in prison. And when you're serving those who are hungry and thirsty and naked and in prison, you are serving Christ. You are there in the name of Christ. You serve the church in finance, in property, in gathering the offerings that God's people give in gratitude. You help in organizing and promoting. Good deacons are good managers. They're not just that, but that's a part of it. You help delegate. You help encourage the people of God to use their gifts to serve. Because it's not that the deacons do all the work or the elders do all the work. We all have gifts. Our committees are ways that many of you are using your gifts. But the deacon is to serve, to move us to serve. To be a minister of mercy so that we will be known as a congregation of mercy. Do you know the most overlooked work of the deacon? One person said, A good deacon is a good shock absorber. Think of Acts 6. Conflict, complaints, people all stirred up. You don't want a deacon who's going to stir the pot. You want a deacon who has a fine-tuned conflict radar, who loves solutions, who rise to respond, who promote harmony in the church, who who muffle shock waves, as one person said. Why? So that the work of prayer and the ministry of the word might go forth, might continue and abound. Brother deacons, those who were ordained and installed today, congratulations, brothers. You now have a target on your back. John Payne says this, the target is called church leadership. Pressure is ramped up. Don't let the devil get a foothold in your life. I was Nordic skiing in the woods this week, listening to Alistair Begg. I love to ski, and I love Alistair Begg. He said, the greatest pitfall in church leadership and church life is, how would you answer that? Pride. Beware pastor, beware elder, beware deacon, beware church member of pride. 
Brothers, as deacons, you are a gift to the church, but the gift can be returned. If a pastor or elder or deacon abuses his authority, neglects his responsibility, is unsound in doctrine or life, they are deposed from office. The responsibility is a warning. Even in that deposition, we pray for the repentance. You are to be faithful to God and his word, not a people pleaser. Not everyone is going to like everything the deacons decide. You're serving Christ. Congregation, avoid two pitfalls. One, in pride, saying, I don't need deacons, I don't need elders, I don't need the church. I don't need help. That's pride. On the other hand, putting the pastor, elder, or deacon a notch below Jesus and thinking that they can meet my needs, fix my problems, and deal with my preferences. (laughs) And they can do it all. No, we're weak. We will goof up. Give us grace as we give each other grace. We are not beyond correction. If we're doing something unwise, congregation, tell us, offer us correction. We want that. Don't be afraid of your office bearers. And pray for us. And assist us, dear brothers and sisters. As many of you do, say, I'm here to help. It's so much easier to offer criticism and critique than to jump in and say, I'm here, what can I do? to serve Christ and his church. Dear congregation, encourage the elders and deacons. I know you do. Be charitable. Let's not make judgments of each other. And congregation, do the elders and deacons know how much you appreciate their service? Take a moment and call them. And may the call not be a gripe or complaining session. Yes, maybe you have something to talk about. That's okay. But May the call be just an encouragement. Go out to lunch with them and and just talk and share life together. Write them a card. Watch their kids. Babysit them. Give them a gift card to Starbucks and say, Brother Deacon, Brother Elder, I appreciate what you're doing. That will put wind in their sails as we are to do for each other, encouraging each other with the gospel. All the more as we see the day drawing near. Pray for us. Pray that God may raise up more elders and deacons among us. Thank God for these men. They work hard. I love them. They love you. They're faithful. The Lord himself is so kind to us. Jesus said, this is my church. I will build it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Father, we pray by your grace, we as the Emmaus Road family will walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.